It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I have a great guest. We're going to get right into it with Melissa DeRosa. So you may remember Melissa DeRosa. She was secretary to Governor Cuomo. That is the highest appointed position. Sometimes when people hear secretary, they might think you're taking shorthand. No, that's not it. It's the highest appointed position in state government. And Melissa is the first person to have served in that spot. She has come up through the ranks in government and politics. She was New York State Director for Obama for America. She was Deputy Chief of Staff for the Attorney General, then did press for the governor, and then secretary. And now, kind of like me, she's outside of the sausage factory now and can have a sort of a seasoned eye as to what's going on. She's got a great column in the Daily Beast. It's a lot of fun to read. So, Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Excited to be here. So one thing that really uh, I find your Twitter feed and your column is so interesting that you do not pull punches. You are not mealy-mouthed in your criticism of Republicans, (laughs) but also of Democrats. You say, quote, Democrats have been taken over by woke Twitter mob and paralyzed by infighting. Democrats have no message, no plan. Republicans have two things Democrats don't, message, discipline, and execution. But you are an out and proud Democrat. And for you, the way you phrase it in one of your columns, the stakes are high. The reality is that the Democratic Party is the only thing standing in the way of the U.S. devolving into fascism. So why is it that you feel called to get this out there? Look, I mean, I am, as you said, an out and proud Democrat. I was raised with Democratic values, middle class family, grandparents who are immigrants from Italy, who, you know, came up through the labor movement, worked with their hands, and who, you know, really relied on the Democratic Party and the values that they hold in order to help move their lives forward, improve their conditions financially, economically. And we believe in the greatest feast is those with the most mouths at the table. And, you know, Republicans have a very different message and a very different value system. And the reality is that we can't fault people for disagreeing with us. It's Mm -hmm. our job to convince people as to why our position is the better one. And in order to do that, it's not enough to pay it lip service and to say things that are moralistically correct or which sound good. But you actually have to follow through with policies and governmental actions that demonstrate competence and demonstrate why it is that people should have faith in our view and our party to get things done. And so I find oftentimes that bumper sticker Democrats, or especially the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, love to talk about things which are often too good to be true, and that's because they are. Mm. And I think that when you do that, and when Democrats go out and say things like free college, or we're going to convert to a green economy in three years, Mm -hmm. or, you know, make these outlandish claims without any real plans to back them up, you ultimately end up alienating people and sending them to the Republicans because they say you can't get this done. You know, you're full of it. And so I think that rhetoric is incredibly important in government and not just politics, but really in government. 
in terms of managing expectations and getting things done so that we are able to bring people over to our side and shore up our majority so we can actually get this stuff done. You know, I agree that demonizing or condescending to people who don't agree with you is not persuasive. It's not a winning strategy. And I find there is a lot of that. So when it comes to the border and immigration, you know, you talk about operations, government, not just the policies and the rhetoric, but also the operations that underpin it all. How do you see with what's going on at the border with immigration, you know, the bus load of people to the plane load of people to Martha's Vineyard coming to New York City, Chicago, D.C., etc.? Obviously, we're talking about human beings, so that has to be – we have to remember that. There's a lot of political theater here, but we're talking about real human beings and families. But to look at it politically, do you think that the Democrats are playing this correctly? And if not, what would be your suggestion? I mean, it's not just and and as you said, it's there's the politics and there's the governmental side of it. And if we just, you know, back up a minute, because I think you can't look at these things myopically, you've got to look at the whole field. We are where we are because in 2019, Donald Trump took the position that migrants should have to wait in Mexico or outside of the United States while their asylum applications are being resolved. Now, that's a process that takes years. And asylum seekers are people who are oftentimes coming because they're escaping persecution or there's some situation in their country that they're fleeing from. And Mm. that's something that America has proudly been on the forefront of in terms of helping migrants come over and helping them settle and have a new life and become part of the working economy and contribute to America. But when he did that and he put the stop at the border, and this wasn't something he was shy about, he ran on it, he campaigned on it, he said that we were being overrun and that we couldn't handle it and that they had to wait, you know, not in the United States while that was being resolved. Now, Joe Biden ran in part on reversing that policy, and it was something that he, you know, said was not matched with our American values and that he was going to undo it if he became president. So lo and behold, he undoes it. And that happens, you know, the first, second week of August. Mm -hmm. Well, the next thing that's ultimately going to happen is tens of thousands of people are going to start to enter across the borders. And what do you do with them? And to your point, this is a humanitarian crisis. These are real people with lives and children who Mm -hmm. are struggling, who have, you know, bared the elements to get here in hopes of a better life. And what's happened now is the Republican governors have decided to seize upon this and say, hey, Democrats. You guys said that you were sanctuary states, sanctuary cities. You want to take this over? It's yours. And they're obviously engaging in what I think are despicable stunts, using these migrants as pawns Mm -hmm. um, in a political chess match. But, you know, what's resulting is mass chaos. You have, you know, uh, I think I read that DeSantis spent 600 grand to send 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard just wow. for this publicity stunt. Wow. Imagine what could have been done with that money. Yeah, taxpayer <laughs> to help money. the migrants aside from just landed on the front page of the New York Times. And so, you know, I think that we can't be surprised by what DeSantis is doing and what Abbott is doing. You know, this is who they are. When people tell you who they are, believe them. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's helpful to be outraged and be shocked. I think that the larger point is the Democratic Party said you know, this is our value system. We welcome these people. We think we should undo Donald Trump's policies. But when you actually then undo it without any government wherewithal or forethought to how it's going to play out and don't do the proper planning, 
then you result in this situation where it's just total chaos and people lose faith in government. Right. And politically, it's a disaster for the Democrats, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think governmentally, which is more important in this instance, Mm -hmm. it's a disaster for real people. Mm hmm. So it's all very well to, to announce with great fanfare this policy and you're reversing this, you know, remain in Mexico, but then you don't have the infrastructure in place. And I think that's something that, you know, you learned in government. I certainly learned in government. You got to get the plan together before you make the announcement. Well, and, you know, immigration for all of the, you know, hubbub and outrage about what the Republican governors are doing. And now it's ending up in the laps of people like Eric Adams, who's struggling to, yeah. to handle it. Yeah. You know. Not for nothing, but immigration is by design and necessity a federal function. The states and the cities cannot manage it on their own. Right. And so, you know, my while I'm watching people get outraged on Twitter and, you know, in The New York Times, my mind goes to where the hell is Joe Biden? I mean, this is a federal responsibility. The White House should be managing this. They can manage it. They have the resources to do it. They've done it before. And with the unaccompanied minors program, which I think should sort of serve as a mi- as a model here and how they can address some of them. Right. But I really, you know, the White House appears absent to me. And it really reminds me of my time in government when we were dealing with a much different crisis on a much larger scale when COVID came. Mm. And the federal government exists for a reason in dealing with national crises and stepping in. And when COVID came, we were left without any instruction, without any direction, without any funding or information at the top end. And you saw just a total cluster and governors and mayors across the country scrambled to try to address it. And it was a disaster. And Mm. in this situation, you know, I'm watching this and I see a lot of parallels in that this is a federal function. Where is the federal government to address it? It's a federal function. And now you have governors and mayors of different parties with different philosophies now arguing about what to do with these poor souls who've traveled for months. And, you know, Lord, you know, there's so much uncertainty in their lives. And now they're being shuttled about, used as pawns. It's the whole thing is just such a I find it to be such a sad failure of government. And, And immigration is something that really is important. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's true. Important to the lifeblood of our country. I mean, you're you talked about your grandparents being immigrants. I I feel like I'm a kind of a fake immigrant because I was born in Canada and became a citizen a couple decades ago here. But people come from all over, and that's what makes this country so great. But the this kind of lack of leadership and lack of operational wherewithal hurts the whole cause of, of immigration. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, the age-old, you know, winners want the ball and people respond to leadership. And when I see the White House criticizing the Republican governors, it's easy to criticize the Republican governors. I think it's obvious. I think we all agree that what they're doing is despicable. But at the same time, you're not a spectator. You know, you're in charge. Mm -hmm. Literally, you Mm -hmm. are the guy. So Mm -hmm. time to step in and manhandle this thing and take control of it and wrestle it away from the politics so that these people who are here seeking asylum, who have been through these horrific ordeals, are not being treated as pawns. Yeah. You mentioned me, Mayor Adams, and how he's trying to cope. There's already a homeless crisis here in New York City. There's not enough housing. We all know that. And it's interesting to see, you know, I just want to switch a little bit to talk about law and order. 
You must be watching, I would imagine, the governor's race with much interest, having been through races similar yourself. And I was reading in the paper a couple, like about a week ago, that Governor Zeldin, who's, excuse me, Congressman Zeldin, who's running for governor against Governor Hochul, has sort of tried to latch himself onto Mayor Adams uh, because Mayor Adams, quite rightly, is trying to deal with bail reform. He's been up to Albany. He's trying to get some changes made uh, to make it easier for cops to do their job and to keep the streets safer. Now, so Mayor Adams, a Democrat, is sort of in this awkward position of saying, well, excuse me, no, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you on gun laws and all of this. You know, get off. Leave me alone. But then you have Democrats like Mike Janaris, uh, this deputy state uh, Senate leader and state Senator Kim, kind of attacking Adams, saying, well, what do you expect? Because you've been so critical of bail reform. And I feel for Adams in that as a Democrat, he's kind of out there on his own on this crime issue. He's responsible for New York City. He's responsible for public safety. It's on him. He is the mayor. But I don't see him getting a lot of support from other Democrats. And, you know, I feel that if I were still in office as county executive, I could have in some small way been helpful. And I I feel frustrated for him. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Well, look, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for what Mayor Adams is going through in his first full year in office. I mean, he came in and de Blasio really handed him the bag. You know, it was coming off of mm. a couple of years of COVID, which caused the dynamic where there was, there were a lot of people who migrated out of the city not to return. Yeah. You're, you're dealing with commercial real estate issues of offices that aren't coming back and trying to sort of figure out this new way of life post COVID. Um, but look, his position, and I think, by the way, that Mayor Adams is doing an incredible job, and I think it's only just the beginning, and that he's saying all the right things, mm-hmm. and I think over time we're going to see those things realized governmentally. But just as sort of the city didn't fall apart in a year, it's not going to get put back together in a year either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, Mayor Adams, his position on bail reform, on dangerousness, on giving judges back the discretion is not new to Mayor Adams. You know, that's something that Bill de Blasio used to say as well. So while I understand that Mike Gennaris and some other Democrats in the legislature are unhappy with how it could be playing politically, given that the Republicans agree with that position as well, it's not Mayor Adams' job to do their politics. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what he believes. And his responsibility, as you noted, is to the people of New York City who elected him. Mm -hmm. And so while it may be inconvenient in their elections, it's not and shouldn't be his primary concern. He believes that that would go a long way in helping on bail reform. I know that statistically, when I was in the governor's office, we used to have these arguments sometimes with localities in the press. But I also sort of concede the fact that reality perception is reality and people don't feel Mm -hmm. safe you Mm -hmm. see that time and again in polling and people have come to believe that part of the issue is bail reform and that they believe that judges should have that discretion on dangerousness Mm -hmm. and so you know he's there to represent the people of the city of new york his job former cop law and order is to get things in line and you know, if it doesn't square with the Democrats' politics, I think that's just too bad. And I don't think he's taking a Republican position. As you noted, when you were county executive, I think that was your position as a Democrat. That right. was Bill de Blasio, you know, very far left Democrat. That was his position as a Democrat. 
And so I don't think that it's fair to knock Adams for taking that, even if it complicates the Senate Democrats' politics this year. Right, right. I want to shift a little bit to talk about the abortion issue. It seems like while I did not agree with the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe, politically, again, not looking at necessarily the humanity of it, but the politics of it, this was a gift from God to the Democrats ahead of the midterms. And you can see the numbers starting to turn around a little bit. It looks like it's not going to be as bad as we all thought it was going to be, although we never know with polling. One of your columns, I thought this was very clever. You talk about a Senator Schumer as the the proverbial dog who caught the car and then, of course, doesn't know what to do with it on row. Do you think that the Democrats could be playing this issue to their to their benefit more effectively than they are? So, look, I think that, as you noted, politically, this was sort of a gift from God for Democrats, putting aside the actual human impact of what I think is a total disaster governmentally from the Supreme Court. But, you know, last spring, it looked like there was going to be a huge washout for the Republicans, that they were going to, you know, win in very big numbers nationally when it looked like the campaign was going to be about inflation and gas prices and public safety. And then, you know, unexpectedly, the Supreme Court decision leaks and it's, you know, anybody's ballgame now. Mm -hmm. So I think, look, I do think and I've got to give Senator Schumer credit, I think, on the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. I think that that was a great piece of legislation. I think that he finally got his conference to walk in a straight line. That was a big win. Yeah, he smartly brought in Manchin. They negotiated the win. He outfoxed McConnell for the first time ever. And I'm hoping, you know, as a Democrat who agrees with him on many things, that he keeps it up and he delivers more. Yeah. On the issue of abortion, I think it's a major mistake for the Democrats to not put something on the floor to protect birth control Mm. or to protect IVF. I think that there are you're seeing these extremist Republicans around the country who are thinking to themselves, well, we just got rid of abortion. Now let's go for the other, you know, parts of reproductive health that we are opposed to for whatever reason, Christian right, whatever it is. And I think that it's not just good politics, but good government to put these senators on the spot and let them vote against these issues, which poll at 90 percent. Yeah, let them vote against against. IVF. Exactly. Or birth control, just access to contraception. Wow. And, you know, I'm seeing parallels in this when just last week, the House, which has been great across the board under Nancy Pelosi and Hakeem Jeffries, they passed a law to protect gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And Sean Patrick Maloney did what I thought was a very smart um, tweet where he talked about how now the Democrats in the Senate, who looked like they were gaining momentum, looked like they were going to go for it and do a vote before the midterms, have now said they're going to shelve it because they need more time. Hmm. And Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney noted that when the House put it on the floor, they got 40 plus Republicans to vote for it. Hmm. And I think that that uses, you know, the tension of the midterms and forcing people to take a position, whereas perhaps before they would have done otherwise. But they've seen how Roe has been playing out, you know, in Kansas and in local races like in upstate New York, the congressional race. And they're afraid to lose their seats. So I think similarly, letting the letting the Senate off the hook on that vote before the midterms is politically a mistake. And as soon as the midterms are over, I think that they're going to swing back right for, you know, whatever their next primary is and in anticipation of the presidential election. So I think that that is a major miscalculation. And I think that ultimately it could result in same sex couples having their rights taken away. Do you think it's really that they need more time or is there another reason why you think they're postponing that? 
I mean, and that's something well, the Republicans that, would be all over, by the way, if it, if it was in their favor. Well, I think that Schumer certainly supports same-sex marriage, so it, I can't imagine it's because, you know, he doesn't agree with it. I think that clearly they think that they don't have the votes. But my mm. point is, you know, Sean Patrick Maloney's tweet is, you know, they got 40 plus Republicans to vote for it. Mm-hmm. Now, did they know they were going to get that many members to vote for it? Or once it got to the floor, did they blink? And I think that you could end up in one way of having it be a massive victory if you were able to put it on the floor and pass it. And if not, put people on the record and right. let them live with that. Right, right. You spoke about the upstate congressional race. I was always sort of interested. I read something a while ago about, you know, you used to be friendly with Elise Stefanik. And I saw on your Twitter you're supporting Matt Castelli, who was running against her. So I don't know if you've read this book called Why We Did It by Tim Miller. He is a former GOP consultant, a rhino. He calls himself a proud rhino. (laughs) Not a rhino, but a never-Trumper, I should say. Anyway, he wrote this book really fun book about, you know, sort of the enablers, the consultants, the political people, you know, why they supported Trump, even if they didn't really like it, even if in their soul they knew it was wrong. And he has this portion on Elise Stefanik. And she started out as a very moderate big tent Republican. She was part of that whole autopsy that Reince Priebus did after McCain lost and Obama won. And it was actually it was it was, I think, when he beat Romney, when he beat Romney, it was 2012. And it was an autopsy. They called it an autopsy. And what they came up with was that the Republican Party, because of the growing diversity and open mindedness in the country, that the Republican Party needed to be more inclusive. It needed to be kinder. It needed to have a bigger tent. And then, of course, we saw four years later in 2016, some would argue that the opposite happened. And Elise changed from this sort of moderate, you know, went to good schools, nice kind of Republican to a full on Trumpy Republican. And I wonder what you make of that, having known her. You know, I don't want to get too much into my personal relationship with Elise, but I will say that I think that based on who people knew her to be early on, this was somebody who reached across the aisle, actually used to do events with Governor Cuomo, you know, worked with their local elected officials, worked with Democrats in the congressional delegation to get things done. And then, you know, from that to where she is today, it's hard to justify or to credibly say that her policies, her approach are consistent. And so the only thing that could have changed is the politics. And I think that she saw an opportunity. I think that she's incredibly ambitious and she saw an opportunity to rise quickly and get into the good graces of the president of the United States. And, you know, that results in trips on Air Force One and that results on being patted on the head publicly at you know, nationally televised press conferences, all of a sudden Fox Hmm. News wants you on your household name. And I think that, you know, sometimes it is exactly what it looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, people spend a lot of time trying to find deeper meaning there. I think it's very obvious. I think that, you know, the Republican Party swang far to the right. And in her view and in other Republicans' views in that moment, the way to not just survive in it, but to thrive in it was to just sort of buckle in and and join the MAGA crowd. Mm. And it's unfortunate. And I think it's self-destructive. And I think over time, it's going to be shown to be a massive mistake. 
Hmm. for these people's reputation long term for their futures long term, because I don't believe this is to our country as I think this is a moment in time. But, you know, I think that she's not alone in having made that that cynical calculation. And, you know, I think that ultimately that they're not going to feel good about that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how it does play out long term, you know, how history looks back on this. Yeah. You know, one thing that I find very refreshing about you in your writing and, and also in your Twitter, your Twitter is lots of fun. You're not a word mincer or a punch puller. You're not afraid of calling things out. Do you find that, and, and also while you were in government and now, do you find that there is any retribution from your fellow Democrats, people who find ways to punish or reprimand or whatever it may be for sometimes what I do, what I call saying the quiet part out loud, which I've gotten into very minor trouble over myself? You know, I think the trick is to not care. Yeah. As you said, I've always sort of been this person. I don't mince words. By the way, my Twitter feed has gotten me into trouble on more than one occasion and landed me in the New York Post and other places. Mm. But, you know, I just think sometimes it's say what you think and what do we get by you know, tiptoeing around issues and pretending that problems aren't problems and just being part of the mob. I think Mm -hmm. that it's important that there are voices in both parties that call out the BS, frankly, and not be afraid of the political consequences. But, you know, I think at the same time, you have to be prepared. Politics is a blood sport that when when you, you know, piss people off over time, they're going to swing when they have their chance. So, you know, you just have to have thick skin and be willing to take that. But I think that the conversation is too important and the stakes are too high to care about it necessarily. Yeah, I think it's really important to say what you really think, even if, you know, and I think you can you can be tactful and you can be polite about it. But the stakes are so high right now. And I think it's that way in both parties. And you have, you know, vindictiveness within the Democrats, but I'm sure you also have it within the Republican Party as well. Oh, I mean, look what they've done to Liz Cheney. And oh, my I, I, God. And, what, and what courage, what cojones she has. I really admire her. I mean, I think that she's got a tremendous future ahead of her, even if it's not, you know, being one of one of 435 in Congress. I think that mm. Liz Cheney has demonstrated that she's a true patriot. And by the way, I don't agree with much of what Liz Cheney thinks politically and on a whole host of social issues. But I think on this one, in this moment in time, history will hold her up to be a true patriot. And so, you know, I think that she can live with herself at the end of the day, unlike a lot of other people who are on the other side and who I think know, not even deep down, know, you know, in their chest that what they're doing is wrong and is against all of our democratic values and flies in the face of the uh, oath that they all take to swear to protect. But, you know, they're operating on a different plane. They care about the politics of the moment and not the Constitution. And I think that Liz Cheney is going to be just fine. But, I mean, you know, to your point, I think that it's important that there are different voices in our party that speak out and are unafraid to speak out. I think it's important to get to the point, get cut to the chase. I mean, I want nothing more than for the Democratic Party to succeed, Mm -hmm. particularly federally. You know, in a state like New York a few years ago, you know, these individual races were much more important. But now the Democrats have a supermajority in the state Senate. You know, the Assembly is overwhelmingly Democratic. Like, a Republican is not going to win statewide here and race for governor. It's just not at any time in my lifetime, I don't think. Hmm. But, you know, federally, so much of policy is coming, is churning out now. And so much of what's going on in terms of going backwards is happening there. And so it's important that we keep the Democrats in charge. And I think 
that the way that they do that is that they match the rhetoric with governmental action and they prove that they can get things done. And that's what real people care about. Real people aren't on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Real people aren't watching MSNBC in the Mm -hmm. middle of the day. Mm -hmm. Real people don't care about, you know, the, the tit for tat back and forth on the far left of the party. They care about, can I put food on the table? Can I put gas in the car? If I want to marry the person I love, even if they're of the same gender, is that afforded to me or is it being taken away? Can I make my own health care decisions? And I think there's a very clear choice in that. And so it's Democrats' job. It's our responsibility to the people who believe in us to put our money where our mouth is and show that not just do we agree with those things and we spout those values, but that we can follow through governmentally to protect them and to get things done. I couldn't agree more. I think you got to show that you can do it, that you got the goods, and that's how you build trust. And like you say, you can have trust and respect for people that you don't necessarily agree with. Like you said about Liz Cheney, you might not agree with her on everything, but you trust and respect. And I think for the Democrats to really be successful, show that you're trustworthy, show that you're worthy of respect because you actually get real things done. The actions meet the rhetoric. I'm going to let you go because our time is up, but just tell us when your next column is coming out in the Daily Beast and what you're writing about. I will have a column out this week talking about the issue that we discussed at the top of this segment on migration and on Democrats' responsibility and sort of fumbling of the issue and what I think we should be doing to take it back. Obviously, it's the topic of the day. I think it's very important, and I hope people read. Great. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Laura. Talk soon. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Now, please join me next time on Cut to the Chase when I speak with another tough woman in politics, former Trump aide Kellyanne Conway. Take care.